0: To create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, Todd Weir. Christianity and socialism go together like fire and water. This was a remark made by Algus Babel in 1874 when he was an up-and-coming leader of Germany's socialist movement. The anti-clerical violence of revolutions in the early 20th century, let's think of Mexico, Russia, or Spain, appears to confirm his verdict. Yet, not everyone in interwar Europe accepted the incompatibility of religion and socialism, as we learn today in an interview with the political theorist and professor at Queen's University Belfast, Vincent Gagan. The dynamism of Stalinist Russia in the early 1930s sent shockwaves through Depression era Britain, leading a group of intellectuals to rethink their Christianity. In his new book, Socialism and Religion Roads to Commonwealth, which has recently been reissued as a paperback by Rutledge, Gagin explores the efforts of four intellectuals to fuse the two, socialism and religion, in theory and in the form of a short-lived political party called Commonwealth, which existed at the end of the Second World War. Our conversation begins with the pivotal theorist in Commonwealth, the Scottish philosopher John McMurray. McMurray saw in communism a continuation of the ethical project of Christianity, and he interpreted communist anti-clericalism as a correction to the Christian churches who had lost sight of this project. Of his own earlier Protestantism, he wrote in 1934, That faith today is in rags and tatters. I should rather go naked than be seen in it. Socialism had become his new form of Christian faith. Our interview ends with the contemplation of the relevance of commonwealth for today's theoretical debates about post-secularism. One side that we live in a post-secular age today is that even left-of-center statesmen such as Barack Obama or Tony Blair, publicly identify religious faith as a starting point for their own political and ethical commitments. To explain his own views, Blair told the Labour Party in 1994, If you really want to understand what I'm all about, you have to take a look at a guy called John McMurray. It's all there. So please join me in the following interview, as we indeed take a look at John McMurray and the other figures of Commonwealth. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm Todd Weir, the host of this channel. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of speaking to Vincent Gagan, who is professor of political theory at Queen's University in Belfast. And uh, today, we're going to be talking about his new book, Socialism and Religion Roads to Commonwealth. So, Vince, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. Uh, I would like to just start off with a sort of general question. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Um, You know, what interests led you to this project?
1: Okay, well, I studied um, politics and history as an undergraduate at Newcastle University in, in England. And then I pursued a PhD at Newcastle on the thought of Herbert Marcuse, particularly looking at his concept of revolution. And that led to my first book, which was a little study of Marcuse, called Reason and Eros, The Social Theory of Herbert Marcuse, That's one of the things that attracted me to Marcuse. It was, if you like, the visionary dimension in his work. Uh, The category fantasy is important uh, in his his work. And that led me to develop something I'd already been interested in, which was the concept of the utopian. Um, So I pursued that, and the, the, the the, the fruit of that was a book in 1987 called Utopianism and Marxism which looked at this rather sort of fractious history, the fractious relationship between Marxism and Utopianism. Um, and I tried to sort of, in that book, to sort of show, on the one hand, the it sort of a complicated relationship and also wanted, in the sense, to defend the category of the Utopian. And then pursuing this sort of interest in the Utopian, in 1996, I think it was, I published a book on But to me, or still is to me, one of the most significant attempts to um, combine utopianism and Marxism, and that was Ernst Bloch. Um, Partly the book was to speak to a sort of anglophone audience in the wake of the translation of The Principle of Hope into English, trying to show you know, what was valuable in Bloch's analysis. And one of the things which I found particularly interesting in his work was the analysis of religion. Uh, and in the late 90s, I began to think more and more about the relationship between like, religion, social theory, secularism, and so forth. I began to think in terms of the concept of the post-secular which in the late 90s was relatively little used. And it's this in a sense which provides the context for the, the, the book, my latest book uh, Socialism and Religion. Because one of the questions I'm asking in the book is, is the post-secular some sort of new phenomenon? Or is it a sort of Postsecularism is merely a sort of the latest form of a recurring element in modern secularism. This desire to, in a sense, regain some of the sort of uh, sort of the uh, heritage of the religious in the context of a a secular society. So, therefore, this partly accounts for why it's essentially and historic. There's a sort of strong historical dimension. in the work is looking back to a period in the in interwar Britain when a number of the, uh, philosophers and writers um, began to explore the ways in which a sort of religion could be an important dimension um, of a progressive politics and so I look at them individually which I'll say who they are in a moment to do and then I look at the way they interact in a political party which was established in the Second World War, called Commonwealth, hence the, the, the title. Um, so it looks like it's trying to look at sort of broader issues of sort of the modern sort of post-secular debates. It's looking at a number of individual writers who I argue have interesting things to say, and I'm looking at a sort of specific, an like, interesting historical phenomenon, this political party uh, in the Second World War
0: very good um, so I'm, I'm curious to know um, first of all a little bit about uh, Commonwealth the party I think there's kind of two bookends to this project as I see it on the one hand you have the emergence really of uh, the sort of uh, powerful communist movement in the form of the Soviet Union in the early 1930s uh-huh. that kind of sets off all of this thought and then the kind of the culmination in terms of organization and actual impact seems to be actually during the war 40 to 45. Um, yes. The emergence of this this party um, so maybe you could say something about the these these four thinkers that you 've you know taken up in the in those two bookends mm-hmm.
1: well there are four people I look at um the first one is John McMurray, who is a a philosopher and um, this particular chapter is concerned with his work on Marx. In the 1930s, Marx appealed to um, McMurray because there seemed to be, McMurray was a very anti-dualist, if we can come back to, and found in in Marx a very valuable resource for developing the sorts of ideas which predated his uh, encounter with Marx and the general point is, is the notion of the relationship between if you like, radical thought and Christianity, in the case of McMurray. Of, of Their inter- relationship, which remains to this day a sort of fraught topic. The second chapter is by um, a chap called Kenneth Ingram. And he's a, a writer, writes novels, um, and my focus on him is Himself as a sort of sexu- as a sexual theorist, um, particularly as um, a person who uh, it, who is gay, and he's attempting to understand and it's like ground homosexuality, or at least sort of make homosexuality in some ways compatible with Christianity. What makes him, if like a very edgy character, what makes it, made it a difficult chapter to write is that along with a number of um, homosexual writers and uh, homosexuals in the 1930s, there is, if you won't call it, a pederastic dimension to his work, an attempt to validate the notion of boy love, as it's called. Um, and to this day, uh, there is this, this, com- this uh, at that, that moment, there is still this notion of how If you like what the relationship between homosexuality and Christianity is, to what extent can homosexuality be compatible with, in in accordance with, and so forth, Christianity. So again, there's a sort of of, of contemporary relevance to that. The third chapter is about the science fiction writer and philosopher Olaf Stapleton, the author of, um, people may know his, his book, Star Maker the 1930s. Here, in a sense, the discussion goes to his sort of cosmological speculations, the notion of the um, how societies destroy themselves, how civilizations uh, destroy themselves, and his attempt to develop, if you like, a religious um, analysis of this process. The difference between himself and McMurray and Ingram, is that where, where, the, where they are explicitly Christian, um, Stapleton is not merely not Christian, but is very critical of Christian, of Christianity. So his is sort of like a religious but non-Christian um, perspective to that. The fourth chapter is about somebody who in a sense is not, is not a philosopher and Although wrote pamphlets, isn't really a sort of in a strong sense a writer, but a politician, a liberal politician. He's included because it was he who set up this party Commonwealth uh, in the Second World War, and the Commonwealth was established in the context of like the suspension of domestic politics during the Second World War in that you had a coalition of the main parties and there were no contested elections. And Commonwealth inserted itself in the space created by that, by contesting by-elections. But also issued a very radical uh, social and economic plan about common ownership of all the major elements of society, industry and so forth. So it's a very radical programme that the linkage between, if you like, Ackland, Ackland, Richard Ackland, the, 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 the person in question, and the other three, that all the, the three of them, those three became members of the Commonwealth Party. And so I explore their sort of role in the Commonwealth Party. But also, because Commonwealth then became like, convulsed, certainly at the leadership level, um, by a whole series of battles, intellectual battles, about the role of religion um, in the party. And you had a sort of very complicated uh, series of positions where McMurray, Ingram and Stapleton took a variety of positions, usually against um, Ackland. And also you got in Commonwealth a number of other positions from very orthodox Christian um, to sort of Marxists who sort of abandoned or had been thrown out of the Communist Party, particularly uh, two characters, uh, Tom Wintringham um, and his wife uh, Kitty, Kitty Bowler, who are very hostile to um, any talk of religion, any talk of morality. And so throughout this sort of brief existence of the party, you get this very complex, very rich debate about the role of religion in, in modern society. The party itself uh, it was basically destroyed by the collapse of the coalition, uh, the party coalition at the end of the war. Once the Labour Party rejoined electoral politics, Commonwealth, which to some extent was occupying the space vacated by the Labour Party, was squeezed out. And the party, although it didn't actually sort of collapse, it all the main people, apart from Stapleton, uh, left the party. And the party limped on well into, you know, sort of, in, I think, into the 1980s. But a sort of really sort of, a sort of fragmentary, very tiny party by that stage. So, broadly, it's the sort of architecture of the piece. Yeah,
0: excellent, excellent. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to start off uh, talking about uh, the McMurray character because you, you begin the book really with McMurray and there's you know there's good reason because he seems to be the one who has the deepest engagement with Marxism and it's a core question of the book obviously the relationship of Christianity and Marxism and uh, there's some very interesting statements by McMurray where he says that I'm a I'm a Christian because I'm not in the church and I'm not in the church because I'm a Christian or this this notion that uh, to be a Christian means to not be a Christian, uh-huh. in a certain sense, in this time period. And, and it has to do with his particular reading of the, in, the historical importance of the Russian Revolution, of the, of the Soviet communism, together with the intellectual legacy of Marx, right, and of German idealism. So there's those two things that he seems to be grappling with that are helping him to move to a new Christian position, a, a critique of Christianity through Marxism. Um, so, first, I have a question about that. What is what is he learning from Marx that is going
1: to, let's say, critique Christianity? Okay. Let's well, go back one step further. Um, Murray, uh, if you like, is educated at a time in philosophy where you have, in many ways, a sort of dominance of what's called British idealism, which is a form of, sort of British Hegelianism. Um, and this British idealism—it's very powerful, particularly in Scotland, where Murray was an undergraduate at Glasgow University, and also at Balliol College, Oxford, where he then eventually became sort of a, 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 was a student, and also became a sort of lecturer uh, there. And British idealism is very anti-dualist, I suppose, um, which is something you wouldn't know about. Uh, Todd, in that you know, I know you've sort of uh, worked on monism, and to the degree to which this sort of tradition is monist, it doesn't like it, likes a notion, it's, it's, it's it wants a notion of like there is a sort of a, a process in history which it encompasses everything, if you like. So now, Murray to some extent rejects elements of the idealist tradition. Because in the post-war Britain, after the First World War, you get a sort of a move towards a realism, a dislike of metaphysics uh, 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 and so forth. So that um, McMurray um, is trying to develop a, sort of a, a new approach, but he's clearly marked by this uh, British idealist tradition. So in a sense, he's looking for ways, if you like, to theoretically develop Um, his his sub-anti-dualism and in the context of the time in the 1930s clearly one of the sort of major modern political intellectual influences is Marxism and therefore he begins to study Marxism and begins to find particularly in the early Marx a, a similar dislike of dualism In the early Marx. He's enabled to do this in a sense because he's one of, I think he's probably the first person writing in English to be acquainted with the newly published Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts of 1844. These had come out in Germany in in 1932. And assisted by the Hungarian socialist Karl Polanyi, McMurray worked through these texts. And he found in in the economic and philosophical manuscripts and in some of Marx's previously published texts, you notably know, on the Jewish question, that Marx was sort of fiercely anti dualist And that from that, um, uh, when began to look back, if you like, prior to Marx, people Marx had interacted with and understood the importance of Feuerbach in all of this, 19th century German philosopher, uh, and began to understand that Marx's social theory grew out of essentially a critique of religion, uh, and that therefore that Marx's conception of alienation, political alienation, economic alienation, and ideology, in a sense, were developments of this uh, engagement with the Feuerbachian uh, critique. Um, Of dualism. And it was this that, if you like, provided a sort of intellectual framework for McMurray's attempt to develop an account of the development of Christianity in the modern world, which argued that there was a Christian basis for the Enlightenment. And that there was a sort of like an enlightenment, um, that the enlightenment itself then developed a sort of like a Christian dimension. So in the latter case, there is a notion, therefore, that things which seem to be sort of anathema to Christianity, hostile to it, such as, say, modern science, um, revolutionary political movements, including Marxism, including the, sort of so- the Soviet Bolsheviks, but in some way, these what appeared to be ultra uh, ultra anti-Christian were, in some sense, the development of this dimension, this if you like authentic dimension in Christianity, where something which seemed to be fundamentally anti-Christian was paradoxically the actual the, in the in the modern world, the, the, if you like the, uh, highly authentic development of Christianity and that it was, if you like, the opponents, the so-called Christians um, who were, if you like, anti-Christian in yeah. their sense. Um, uh, so, in a sense, this is if you like, the basis of then the project uh, of, of, of in the, in the 1930s. Well, I, you know, I, 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 that was that was excellent.
0: Uh, what's interesting, though, is I think from the point of view of say Feuerbach or even a you know early Marx, really history of the history of Christianity is really a, a history of humanism uh, that's worked through the Christian stages to come to an understanding of itself as a you know self conscious um, humanity. So, but what seems quite interesting about all of these characters is that they seem to want to then from the humanism get back to the Christianity. And uh, there's a there's a very interesting um, uh, pamphlet or book by uh, Ackland that you mentioned, uh, which is called "It Must Be Christianity" uh-huh. or I think the name of it from 1941, I think, where he suggests that uh, humanists and Christians are going to be able to unite in the party of Commonwealth, but also in the project of you know I don't know liberating humanity, making the next step forward in, in human civilization. But from the point of view of these Christian Marxists, it seems that ultimately humanism itself is going to be re-Christianized. And is that, does that seem? Was well, there something to that, or yeah, I, know, mean, I misreading the, it.
1: In the case of Ackland, I mean, his point is that he's different from the other three thinkers I discuss. In that he is your classic dualist, in a sense. In that Ackland uh, undergoes a conversion experience. Um, in the early 40s, 1940s, and they developed what is, in a sense, a fairly, well, not entirely orthodox, but theologically fairly orthodox Anglicanism or Episcopalianism, as it would be known in the United States. Um, so, yeah, he does talk about the relationship between humanism and Christianity, but in a sense... He has a sort of hegemonic project of his own, which is basically Chris, humanists or Christians who don't quite realise it yet. Right. But Christians, in a sense, not in the sort of McMurray-England um, sense, but humanists in the sense that they that they that they're, that they're basically can be won over to, in in Ackland's case, to a fairly orthodox, dualistic uh, Christianity. Um so Ackland then becomes, within Commonwealth, a, if you like, a sort of a, an, a bit of an outrider, um, uh, trying to defend the fairly orthodox Christianity, against um, Ingram and McMurray's notion of a, a Christianity in which isn't no, God isn't in a, an external figure, cannot there is, isn't a personal God cannot be appealed to, that God is in some sense a process of human development um, uh, so, that the, uh, so from that uh, McMurray and Ingram are in a sense sort of, a, a, a sort of from, from, really di- from a very different perspective vis-a-vis of uh, uh, this um, so the terms, are, although they often use similar terms, they're actually coming from very different positions original positions uh, but then okay for McMurray then um, it, it does
0: seem that even though he has this imminent notion of Christianity of the divine which in some sense is compatible in his understanding with socialism with Marxism it seems nonetheless that he expects Christianity to, Christianity to come back as it were and provide a new um, a, a new element in the in unfolding of the dialectic so that in a sense the, there, there's a, a approval of Soviet Communism in a general sense, but there's also a hidden, or maybe not hidden. There's a critique from a Christian perspective, um, where it seems that they anticipate a sort of renegotiation of the religion of Christianity and Marxism,
1: also potentially in the Soviet Union. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, he, I mean, he's writing on this occasion is sort of rather messy and not always co- consistent. Um, he sees the 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 sort of Russian Bolsheviks, as in a sense, more Christian than the sort of Christians, because in a sense they are, um, their attack on religion is in a sense a a sort of a premonition or a foretaste of a notion where you don't have separate religions. You know, McMurray says, doesn't he, at some point, um, a society which has religions isn't. Religious. So the fact that the Bolsheviks are in head, anti-religious is to him, in one sense, a sign that they are, if you like, being the Christians of the modern era. And it is those who see Christianity as a as a faith with a dualistic Christianity, or the people who have gone down the wrong path, in a sense. But he's aware that if you like, the radical atheism in the Soviet Union. Can in a sense be so pervasive as to undermine the whole notion of there being a value to religion, and that it can be sort of sort of decline into a sort of visionless, ungrounded uh, totalitarianism in a sense. So he wants to sort of like sort of, this rather sort of delicate balancing out that somehow communism is this sort of political, is politically important, but on the other hand is aware that there are sort of problems um, with this. And as you said, you use the word dialectical, because, and that's what he does. If you, I mean, the, as you the the, the, the the main text is his book A Clue to History, which he wrote in the 1930s, which is an extraordinarily sort of dense account of the sort of tortuous dialectic of European history um, uh, back to a sort of Hebrew uh, civilization, where all the time he's trying to show, you know, what appears to be the most hostile to Christianity is in fact, you know, the authentic development of it. And you have these sorts of... uh, And he uses the sort of of notion of a dialectic to try and give... Some sort of theoretical basis for what appears sort of counterintuitive um, in, in the first case. It's not entirely, entirely successful, but I think that's what, that's what he's trying to do vis uh, a the Soviet Union. And he has, he, I mean, he, he sees them, I mean, he's clearly there's a degree of credulity in his approach to the Soviet Union, but I don't think it's duplicity. In other words, it's not somebody who actually basically knows this is the the, the the deception here, but he's prepared all the time to give the Bolsheviks a sort of the, the benefit of the doubt in this respect. Um, so, you know, he does talk about you know, the, the selfless leadership in the in, in, in Soviet Union. And all, all of them, all of the people I look at, to some extent, and particularly once the sort of, Soviet Union joined the Allies in the Second World War, there is an attempt to if you like, see the Soviet Union in the best possible light, um, uh, in that sense. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that's... Just picking up on this, the question
0: of the the anti-dualism of... of, We already mentioned the word monism, and as you also said, I'm very interested in this particular (laughs) topic for my own research. Um, But something that strikes me about the, the monism of this group of intellectuals you're looking at is, uh, is that they're carrying forward uh, certain intellectual projects from the 19th century that we see um, coming from other directions, out of the natural sciences, uh, from he- characters like um, Ernst Haeckel, who was this interpreter of Darwin, who came up with a, you know, a monistic account, really, of human evolution, using Darwin and kind of adhering to it, a, a worldview. Um, that was going to be anti-dualistic so uh-huh. everything was going to be explained from a single principle of mechanistic science plus uh, Darwinian evolution um, and in the in the 20s it seems that one of the effects almost philosophically of the Russian Revolution and especially once the Soviet Union becomes a real you know uh, force in in its own through its own development in the five-year plans in the early 1930s is that uh, that it seems that on a philosophical religious level, a whole new group of intellectuals start to grapple with this question of dualism and philosophy, and and we start to see both embracing of monism by certain people, such as what you're looking at, and we see others that, that develop a critique of um, communism using the same principles almost. So you have people like Eric Fromm who had developed the theory of political uh, theology in the 1930s. Uh, there are other... Um, especially Catholic intellectuals from Central Europe that were involved in this struggle against communism and they interpreted communism in religious terms um, you know on one level as the Antichrist, uh, many of these uh, Protestant and Catholic theologians in Germany and Austria but but some of them, like Ferkleland developed this notion that that it was a type of religious heresy. Um, Ferkly in this essay on political religions, described it as um, immanentizing the eschaton. So the eschatological uh, elements of of Western Christianity were being made imminent. They were being brought down into history. Mm -hmm. And that that communists were essentially a type of uh, heretical movement, um, perhaps out of Christianity, but had taken the wrong path and were embracing this notion that you could have... um, in a sense, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God on this earth, right? That it was an imminent fulfillment Mm -hmm. of sacred history. And so this was the the criticism by the the Berkeley and other, you know, conservative uh, theologians in Central Europe. Um, So it it, it was almost the mirror image of what McMurray was doing because, you know, they were saying, well, this is a horrible heresy, Mm -hmm. you know, to be trying to pursue sacred history in time, in, in, you know, Secular history, mm-hmm. whereas McMurray seemed to uh, see, seem to embrace um, embrace that element. Um, there's not exactly uh, um, a question in that, but something else. You you, you mention also some other figures um, that are you, you know you bring up on the sort of sides such as like Ernst Bloch. Um, you mentioned it was uh-huh. one of your um, earlier books you've, you've written on him. I'm thinking also of Walter Benjamin. It seems to me these are other uh, philosophical minds of that time period that are encountering Soviet communism
1: and responding. Yes. Um, I'm just I, curious. I, mean, I draw attention to Bloch in, in the book because there does seem to be sort of a great deal of, sort of similarities, particularly McMurray uh, and Bloch, in that uh, Bloch also understands the, the critiques for Bach. But talks about, if you like, I think he calls it, is it a sacred line, leading from Feuerbach um, via sort of Marx and, and so forth, rather Hegel Feuerbach uh, Marx. And there is a, an appreciation in, um, in Bloch of the importance of Feuerbach to the, to the emergence of, of Marxism. And in the book, I contrast, if you like, Bloch and um, McMurray's reading um, of Marx, where if you like, what else was available in English in the 1930s? So I look at uh, Isaiah Berlin's uh, biography of, of Marx and E.H. Carr's biography, um, and they really don't appreciate the um, uh, importance of Feuerbach and this whole Marx's engagement with religion in the development of his thought. Um, and Berlin calls Feuerbach a sort of charlatan, I think, or something like that at some point. Um, so, and when uh, McMurray's work was, was published, you've got people who reviewing his work saying, you know, McMurray doesn't understand Marx. What's all this stuff about such a religion and so forth um, in it? So there was a review of uh, one of his works called, um, Does McMurray Understand Marx? where well, the answer was in the negative. There's all these sort of manuscripts which had sort of appeared, you know, you suppose you should really look at these important texts and that these were sort of these were just sort of, you know, sort of tryouts uh, and so forth so in a way, McMurray is very much ahead of his time I mean, there were people, like Marcuse himself brought out a, a review of the economic and philosophical manuscripts in 1932 um, so there was appreciation of that and Pollyanyi Helped McMurray sort of, um, uh, to sort of read through these works and so forth. So, um, so is sort of um, working to uh, of um, uh, of the sort of the sort the, of the, the, the anti-dualism dimension I, 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 in Marx. It's very prescient um, for its time, I would say. Mm-hmm.
0: And um, this this notion of the the immanentization of The theological content of Christianity. Um, I'm just curious uh, about how does it remain Christian, or what is the Mm -hmm. you you keep referring to the fact that they saw themselves as Christians. Is it merely in the origin of this development in history that they see themselves as Christians, or do they actually adhere to the notion of? some kind of salvations
1: or to good, what are they really yeah. Christian or good question um, one problem is that, particularly in the case of McMurray and also I suppose to, 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 to Ingram who's very influenced by McMurray um, it's not clear what they mean by God even in, in their work, because they are sort of imminentists. Um, they they use metaphors and so forth. And there's a very sort of lot of sort of negativism, you know, in, in the sense that they say, well, God isn't this. God doesn't exist in another realm. God is not a sort of person in a sense. God is not someone who you can appeal to. God is in some sense part of the process. Um, but they see specifically in the question of why then do they call themselves Christian? And particularly in the case of McMurray, is because he sees the figure of Jesus as a pivotal figure in the transmission of the virtues and the values of ancient Hebrew society. And ancient Hebrew society for McMurray features a sort of mixture of, sort of Golden Age, Geist, Telos, all in one. But Hebrew society, in the sense it's a sense, sort is of almost a sort of anticipation of the dimensions of a future, sort of like good society. In the Hebrew society in McMurray's reading is one where is itself fundamentally anti-dualist. So for example, he points to the fact that they re- resisted the attempt to establish kingship against the political uh, dualism, They, um, he saw the prophets attack on the priestly class, again, anti-dualist in his uh, uh, conception, and the fact that, you know, property redistribution via the sort of jubilee. Um, And that, according to McMurray, um, ancient Hebrew society, um, there wasn't, again, a division of labor where there was one thing called religion and other dimensions. The whole society was, in a sense, sort of religious. So it was a religious society, but there was no religion as such. Now, the figure of Jesus for is, is the person who, in a sense, appreciated that dimension. This was, as if like, the values of the society in which he grew up. Um, but the fact that, if you like, the, Jewish, the, 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 the priestly caste at the, in, in 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 Jewish society, because they rejected uh, Jesus, is McMurray's notion that somehow this is the point where Hebrew society begins to, uh, say, if you like, unwind, and this therefore is the moment where, if you like, the sort of Jesus' message begins to move from, if you like, merely a expression. Of a sort of local uh, society begins to become universal in that sense, via the sort of Roman Empire, and therefore into Europe uh, and so forth. So, although in one sense it's talking about the virtues of a, a Jewish society, it, in McMurray's notion, it only becomes universal once it, it sort of morphs into Christianity. Um, and at that point, Christianity then becomes, if you like, the bearer of the, the heritage of Jesus and his reflections upon the, like, the virtues of, of Hebrew society. So in that sense, it's it that's why McMurray can still call himself, he says, Christian, because that there is this sort of reference back uh, to Jesus. There's no, within McMurray though, there's no, and that's why he he says, you know, he's a Christian outside the Christian churches, because the notion of separate churches is a sign in the sense that things have gone badly wrong. Once religion becomes a separate notion of faith with institutions and doctrines and so forth, then that indicates that the society is fragmented. Mm-hmm. You beginning to get a debilitating division of labour based upon social inequality, economic inequality and so forth. So it's that, but of course to critics, it was not at all clear, therefore, why McMurray or Ingram were actually Christians, in that sense, because they seemed to be rejecting everything which was sort of salient to Christianity, namely that Jesus was God, and that the God was a sort of external being. um, um, So that it mystified many of their critics, and it seemed to them some sort of a weird heresy um, that, in, that um, Murray and Ingram were engaged in. And once Commonwealth w- w- was started, Ackland got into trouble with some of the really conservative Christians in the organisation for being seen to associate, particularly with Ingram's work, um, because the, the, this sort of very, very sort of very conservative Christian felt, well, why are you Ackland? Why are you associating with something which is a sort of modernist heresy? Um, so, yeah, so the, the sort of notion of them being called Christians was by no means you know, unproblematic and was was a factor in, if you like, some of the political and theoretical debates within Commonwealth about the role of um, religion in, in the party. Excellent.
0: Um, I wanted to turn to um, this, the second subject of this study, which was Kenneth Ingram. And uh, there was a nice quotation um, in your book where McMurray is reflecting in later years upon a meeting of the early 1930s, um, I think perhaps at his college. I'm not sure where it it took place. But at any rate, he he said that there were two burning issues of today. One was communism, and the other was sexuality. That's right. And he he, he obviously decided to focus on communism. And in a sense, um, Ingram focused on sexuality. That's right. And... I was wondering if you could um, say a little bit about more about Ingram, and what I'm particularly interested in is is uh, the, the particular, let's say, the utopian content of his vision of homosexuality. Because you mentioned its problematic aspects, you know, in retrospect, the the focus on boy love. But there's also a utopian element to this way that he conceives of boy love or of the the role of homosexuality. Um, in human development in this time period. Yeah, I mean,
1: you need to distinguish. I mean, he's trying to validate homosexuality sort of generally and essentially in terms of adults. But there is this dimension to his work, sort of biological dimension. It's an important element to his work. But theoretically, you can see he's of interest in terms of the way he attempts to sort of theorise homosexuality and tries and tries to argue that in some sense this is compatible. With Christianity as he understands it, um, I mean he starts out with a sort of a notion which essentially he gets from Carpenter, who but really gets it from Magnus Hirschfeld, um, the notion that homosexuality is some sort of third sex. Um, his development on it, though, and this in a sense comes back where the sort of the sort of boil up dimension comes into it is he does what many sort of homosexuals of the time do, is to look back to ancient Greece um, and to argue that if you like the sort of the um, the strength of Greek society came from, if you like, this sort of homosocial, homosexual bonding of males in it. And that this sort of love of comrades, to use um, carpenter's term, actually was a very sort of creative uh, dimension. And so in his early work, in Ingram's early work, there is this notion that somehow this dimension of love between men can help to inform and help develop a sort of, uh, a, sort of a better society. So he does develop what he calls a, little, a sort of utopia, um with some rather odd notions in it um part of it, and one of the sort of darker dimensions in his work is i mean there's a sort of misogyny in it part this focus on sort of the homosexual on the homosexual means that a sort of women he, he, uh, he doesn't really he uh, successfully or adequately when he, um, he uh, applies much thought to uh, the role of women in all this his focus all the time is on the homosocial spaces and interests so he talks about in his utopia there is a, a house of ladies equivalent to the house of lords um, which votes on women's issues as he sees it um, and he talks about the independence of women from men but so that men actually can spend more time with each other <laughs> in a sense so So in this early stuff, there's a lot of this sort of sort of Victorian Hellenism with a sort of homosexual dimension, um, and um, uh, a sort of sort of feudal socialism, I would say uh, the the way I put it, um, where there are sort of dukes and and things like that. It's also linked with comes out of a lot of the themes are out of um, Anglo-Catholicism, which is a very high church form of, of Protestantism, and Ingram, in this from like the tens, the twenties, the tens and twenties particularly, uh, is very much a sort of uh, a, an advocate of um, of a sort of Anglo-Catholicism. But so, so there is this sort of there is an attempt to sort of theorise in terms of carpenter's co- concepts. There is an attempt to try and argue the virtue, if you like, of the, the, these relations of affection and so forth. But this is this does rule out any sexual activity between men. In other words, he accepts that in this that Christianity, which he you know, he is a Christian, he is Chris, clearly a Christian at this stage rules out any form of sexual activity outside marriage. So these, if you like, relations between men are non sexual. Similarly, sort of the, the notion of sort of boy love, again, is it's not in any way an attempt to be an attempt to sort of uh, validate that at the sexual level. So you get this as a sort of, if you like to say his starting point. And then there is a sort of intermediate period which we won't go into. But in the nineteen thirties he begins to become influenced by McMurray's work on um, um, Christianity and so forth. Um, And at the same time, he begins to refine his notion of what homosexuality is away from the sort of third sex notion, away from the idea of uh, um, sexuality, some sort of um, sexual presence in the individual, um, that one is homosexual because of certain... Inbuilt um, ontological features towards the notion that homosexuality is a um, um, is determined by the choice of your sexual partner, that therefore it's a much more fluid uh, field of forces. Now, equipped with sort of McMurray's notions, he begins to do a sort of a sort of hermeneutics of the Bible. It's to say at this stage. And this is by now we're talking about the late 1930s, beginning of the 1940s, um, how a reading of the Bible a sort of deep reading as McMurray had done, could provide a sort of new basis for saying that sort of homosexuality was valid, but also homosexual sexuality was valid. And he develops this notion that the, 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 the basics of Christian ethics is love, and that is the basis of things. So there two people: love one another, then that is, if you like, the Christian uh, response. Whereas, if you like, the morality he previously uh, held to, he sees as a sort of anti-Christian legalism, which had crept into Christianity, whereby Christianity is a series of you know, thou shalt not do this, do that. And the homosexuality was one of the dimensions, which was do not do this. So by the end, by the late 1930s, he's developing this notion of um, um, a- an ethical base for um, homosexual sexual behaviour. But this then presents him with a headache, which he never entirely resolved with. If that's the case, at what age is this legitimate? Um, um, And there are hints in the work that he does end up with some that he really does feel that there has to be some age of consent, which seems to be, in his mind, 16. and So there are hints of that. So he moves, say there is a move away from this Anglo-Catholic, and also within the Anglo-Catholic period, not only is there misogyny, but there's a rather obvious dimension of anti-Semitism in the work. Again, that Goes largely goes um, with, with the interaction with um, McMurray. Um, the other debt, and McMurray, not simply the sort of the notion of a sort of a sort of a hermeneutic you know, hermeneutics of the Bible text, um, um, is um, the notion of friendship the personal in McMurray. McMurray's notion of, the way he tried to conceptualise it, like the utopian core of his work, is the notion of friendship, that people can relate to one another um, as individuals, in a sense. uh, A question of love between individuals, non-exploitative relationships. And he uses the term friendship. Now, friendship in the homosexual community... Um, was often a, 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 a code word for homosexual behaviour. Uh, I'm using homosexual behaviour rather than gay here throughout this, in terms of histo- the, the historical project, these are the terms that he uses, in a sense. I'm, uh, I'm gay myself, so I would describe myself as gay. Um, but when you're sort of doing the historical analysis, um, to use the term gay in that it's often, it doesn't quite, it's difficult to do it with the texts and so forth, so using the terms that England uses, which is homosexual and sometimes invert um, um, he sees in uh, McMurray an, a, a notion which implies, you know, that if you like the sort of what, what, a, a pot, what are good human relationships are ones where mutuality and so forth, where it's not a matter of gender and so forth, but between if you like, person to person. That's another element he gets out of McMurray and why he's sort of attracted uh, to McMurray's work.
0: Very good. Um, I think we'll, we might leave the two other thinkers for those who are going to read the book, um, but I do want to talk about the sort of, uh, you know, the contemporary context and relevance of this study because. Um, You know, we always, at least historians, you're always in some sense writing a history of the present, right? We always have our present concerns that lead us to our historical questions. And, you know, you've taken up a phenomenon that's quite fascinating, uh, you know, because it really opens a window on this period, you know, certainly 1930 to 1945 and probably before and after as well. Um, It's interesting also because it's it's a movement that, uh, you know, essentially was... It wasn't stillborn, but I mean, the party didn't really survive, as you said, the reentry of Labour into um, British politics at the end of the war. Um, and, and I find it fascinating to think about uh, both about you know what are the contemporary relevance of these mo- movements that have been lost to sort of recover their intellectual work, but then also to think about you know um, what they say about that specific period, precisely because they they didn't survive in mm-hmm. a sense. Um so those are sort of two things that interest me um um uh, you know at, at thinking about the these figures today um could you see some a little bit more you mentioned at the beginning this whole question of the post secular uh-huh. um i i think that deserves to be unpacked a bit um, you know one historical period ends in 1945 um you know the the let's say the the, the appeal in a very broad sense of the soviet union perhaps ends around the end, the beginning of the Cold War. But certainly after 1989, uh, Marxism as a whole suffers. Um, What does the the term post-secular mean,
1: and how does it fit into this post- Cold War period? Uh Well, the the term post-secular is itself contested, to some extent. there are different meanings of it. There are two very diametrically opposite versions of it. There's one which is, if you like, a conservative approach, which by post-secular means pre-secular. In a way, the term is used to describe um, an attack on the elements of secularism. So it's anti-liberal, anti-socialist belief that the whole secular um, move was a terrible mistake. Um, Separation of church and state. All these dimensions were an appalling error so it's sometimes used by conservative uh, anti-secular writers the way that I use it and the way which many others use it is the notion that the, the secular moment historically was important in other words that these things like the emergence of liberalism and modernity were important and need to be defended, um, but the, the feeling, the feeling, the sort of perspective is feeling that the, one of the prices paid for that is that there was a devaluation of the heritage of the religious. Um, that it was seen as so, like someone like Richard Rorty was the one who was an example of that. He says, you know, that that uh, secularism was a sort of the, the, the Enlightenment's deal with religion. That religion just becomes a private affair, uh, and is best not used in sort of the public domain, uh, in a sense. So the secular sense is: is there some way in which, if like the the, the, the sort of the the, the the heritage of religion can be utilised today? but in the context where there is a defence of um, the the achievements of of modernity. Now, two dimensions to that. One is, well, that there's value in that, because, in a way, the religious tradition can provide resources, which is sometimes lacking in secular discourse. In other words, the notion of soul is a much more capacious and resonant notion than the notion, say, of the the individual or something like that. In other words, there's been a whole series of levels of meaning that are lost to some extent in secular vocabulary. And that this um, uh, vocabulary, the the religious vocabulary, can provide a a richer basis for um, engaging um, with uh, people who are of faith. so, for example, um, I mean, part of the argument is that, in a sense, when a secular person is confronted by a religious person with a piece of scripture, there's no, simply no meeting of minds. In a way, from the secular point of view, this is a substance, sort of simple nonsense, and therefore there's no actual positive engagement there. The man is just talking nonsense, the woman is just talking nonsense from that perspective, which is a sort of, some extent, a sort of rorty, Perspective, and so there there was no meeting of minds, and therefore, in a sense, if there is an attempt to understand and appreciate the religious dimension, there is a basis for dialogue there. But there's also, I think, particularly in the wake of 9/11, which in a sense gave us stimulus to the notion of of post secularism, where now you had a, or seen as a religious, uh, political project of a very sort of destructive nature, the post-secular approach also enables perhaps a way to contest that, not simply saying in traditional secular liberal Temple, this is, this is awful, um, but to actually say, well, why are people doing this? And to engage um, both you know, what, w- with their own you know, sort of religious texts and with people in that community who um, one can have dialogue with on the basis that there is an understanding there. And there is some, there's the beginnings of within some sort of, particularly within Islam, are people using tempo secular also there, the notion that the Quran can be used um, as a... um, in the context of a sort of modern society with sort of liberal uh, principles uh, and so forth. And in a sense, to go back to the, the, the authors, they're doing similar sorts of things. So, in the sense that, like, like Stapleton argues, that um, uh, we'll use, deliberately use, in you know, a term, religious terms, arguing, and his characters do in his novels the argument there is, you know, why should concepts which are the heritage of all humanity merely be seen as the property of people with faith, in a sense? So all four thinkers, in a sense, are, have the, are basically of the mind that religion is too important to be left to the religious. Um, that here's an area of, if you like, the whole the principle of, of human development, human creation, and that therefore, you know, they, the, 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 the narrowly religious should not be seen to have a monopoly and a veto on these terms. Nor is it therefore inadmissible or, or bizarre for people who may not be members of faith communities to use religious texts and so forth in varying degrees. In other words, there are post secular writers who I would know, sort of identify who, I mean, this ranges from sort of atheists right through to uh, believers. I mean, some respects you might call, that he might disagree, Charles Taylor, his book, you know, The, 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 the Secular Age, came out a few years ago. Um, I mean, there are parallels between what he's doing and what, say, McMurray's doing in McMurray's A Clue to History, in that Taylor is at pains to argue that, The modern world isn't what he calls... It's not a subtraction theory. Namely, what the story is. You once had an age of faith, and then people sort of um, abandoned it. And that's the history of of, of the secular world. Rather, he wants to show, as McMurray wants to show, that actually this sort of secular culture grew out of and was actually developed by religious people, in the sense that they developed the concepts... um, and that therefore there is an authentic, if you like, likewise, sort of, sort of religious dimension there. Um, and likewise, Taylor says, you know, although we want um, secularism, you know, in the sense of something like Rorty might have in mind there, although we want secularism, this cannot be at the expense, what he says is a spiritual lobotomy, um, that you just can't sweep away this rich tradition, which has this, you know, in many ways, from his perspective, a, a religious base. Um, so for someone like Taylor, the Reformation, although he's a Roman Catholic, the Reformation is was necessary and was valuable. But in a sense, Luther is part of this a sort of element of renewal in the Reformation and is developing out of religious um, categories, things which begin to develop into... Or we would see as you know little notions like, like like tolerance, like ultimately division, division of between church and state, and so forth. These things grow out of you know religious discourse. I guess like Locke uh, and so forth. Um, um, so that, so that you know, the, 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 the seems to be sort of this term of secular seems to sort of evoke. Variety of different projects and approaches. The one that seems to me to, to, to have sort of richness, but as I said at the very beginning, that, that sometimes people seem to argue that this is a sort of a unique historical moment that we are entering the age of post secularism. When I, I, I want to argue, argue in the book to some extent, argued elsewhere that it's more a case of um, post secularism is is the latest in what seems to be a recurring recognition um, uh, since, you know, sort of the development of secularism. So, for example, Carlisle, you know, talks about that there were two half men, Hume, David Hume with his science, and um, Dr. Johnson with a sort of deep sort of religious theme, element in it. He said, what we want is a complete... Man somebody who's actually sort of sort of, sort of uh, attuned to science uh, but nonetheless nonetheless is aware of the sort of religious so that goes back to sort of the nineteenth century and um, excuse me the moment of Commonwealth is one of these from the thinkers which sort of you know, debated within this political party uh, an earlier form is a, a sort of earlier form of the, these concerns manifesting themselves
0: the um- I was I was just thinking also about the um, I think you've you've done a great job of of really explaining um, as you said continuities in this this thinking about or complicated thinking about the relationship of the secular and the and the sacred or the religious uh, and the ways in which these thinkers uh, are engaged in a conversation that is in a sense continued recently. In, in philosophy and in, in critical theory in general but I'm also uh, struck by the, the fact that it seems that there's something quite different about their approach which is that they are um, they're not post secular in the sense that they are um, they're still very modernist they're not post modernist they actually want to, at least with McMurray it strikes me anyway that he wants to uh, have still the Telos in the history yeah. and he still he wants the resolution of these dynamic terms, so that the secular and the sacred are engaged in this dialectical operation. Whereas it seems to me, and I'm not very very well read in this literature, but with somebody like Habermas, Jürgen Habermas, that when he talks about the post secular, he really is talking about a dialogue between the religious and the secular without yeah. a resolution. Uh, it's merely keeping the channels of communication open. As far as you know, this may be a complete simplification, but that uh, the, the post secular doesn't want to reduce. One term to the other, the religious and secular, but rather maintain the kind of contradictions and the aporia. And Mm -hmm. um,
1: is this well? Yeah, I mean, the fact. I mean, as a historian, you have to to recognize that when you say things recur, they never recur in exactly the same way. In other words, that yeah, I mean, that the the, the position in the nineteen beginning of this century meant that that, yeah, the terrain of thinking, was different to what it is today. So I'm not saying that you can find, you can read off, um, all current concerns of people like Habermas and Taylor and find them. But in a sense, there is, if you like, a similar um, sense of unease in both of them, that there is something not right about the relationship between um, the notion of religious and secular Now, the way they then work through that is different and will reflect, you know, the intellectual and social and political and cultural uh, context of the time. So you're not going to find, you know, Habermas in the 1920s and so forth. But nonetheless, I think what it points to is a a recurring sense that... the, the arrangement or the development of the relationship between religious and secular needs to be const- refined and um, renegotiated. At very, yeah. And that each, where, wherever this happens, historically, then, you know, it, it uses the intellectual context of the time, the debates, to try and work through this uh, unease uh, in ways which make sense in the sort of intellectual milieu of the time, uh, and therefore clearly, from a historical perspective, you did, these people—I you know, don't call them postsecularists. I simply say that they are part of this, like the tensions within the sort of relationship between the religious and the secular, which generates you know, this unease and leads to attempt to try and. We negotiate by sort of finding the sort of ways to which perhaps the sort of heritage of religion can be sort of positively sort of integrated. But the particular form of take will vary depending where post secularism is the term. In that sense, it's it's a product of this time. So you don't you don't find the term used. Uh, I think the earliest usage is about 1972, and, uh, and there are a few two or three usages in the. Eighties and nineties, um, but in its current form, it is a, you know as the as the term has become more widespread, then it is becoming very much a you know, concept of the struggles and the um, uh, of the time. Um, so in that sense, it's unique, but it's not as a as a sort of moment. It's not unique in that sense. In a words, so it is part of this sort of. you know Post-medieval emergence of the secular, and you know the ways in which people felt that that that's, isn't, that isn't in its particular form isn't isn't entirely working, and that needs therefore you know, renegotiations.
0: I was wondering if we might um, end on a, on a note with which you begin your your book, or at the first chapter, I think, which is a, a comment by by Tony Blair. Uh, that, uh, that he uh, took inspiration from John McMurray um, and, uh, and re- referred people back to the book, uh, uh, just as a sort of figure at the end of the 20th century of, of great importance in, the, in, in British politics and labor. Um, it's just an interesting moment, you know, where, where it, the Christian and the Marxist, if you so will, where they come together in Tony Blair and maybe where they go apart again. Well,
1: like many people, I'm sceptical of to what extent Blair was familiar with um, McMurray's work. Um, um, I mean, there's little to see in um, in, uh, Blair's attenuated social democracy and sort of neoliberalism, much that would appeal uh, to McMurray. I mean, clearly the Blair is Christian, in that sense, that's an element in it, but people when they when they heard about that Blair was, uh, was talking about McMurray and many people in their mind had this vision therefore McMurray must be some sort of 1930's pious social democrat as we've seen he's not he's a sort of very radical thinker a Marxist who actually does want the establishment of the kingdom of heaven on earth that is what he's after language you wouldn't hear in, in, in Tony Blair so the McMurray Blair though did McMurray a service in that certainly by the 19, by the time of his death in the 1970s, McMurray was philosophically dreadfully old hat, and people like A.J. Eyre, who succeeded him at University College London, was derisory about him in, in, in his um, memoir, and didn't thank him in his inaugural, as you're supposed to do. Uh, so he was very much a sort of forgotten figure um, in the... 60s, 70s, well particularly seventies the 70s, 80s and in a sense uh, Blair's mentioning often then people said, well who is this John McMurray and that to some extent stimulated a, a sort of uh, a new interest in McMurray but once the people who then, then read McMurray then scratched their heads as to what it could be that you know, Blair had taken uh, from, from this and he doesn't, Blair doesn't actually spell it out particularly what it is he just says read McMurray and you find what I'm about well people have done up to Blair and McMurray not entirely clear <laughs> yet or if ever what this you know what, what what the relationship is
0: very good well Vince Vince I think we've taken enough of your time today I want to thank you very much for this fascinating interview and a very interesting book and um, wish you all the best great thanks Top appreciate it ok thanks for being on the bye. show ok
1: thanks. bye. bye